Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Kinga Bloch, and I'm the assistant to the director at the Leo Beck Institute London, Dr. Daniel Wildmann. Unfortunately, our director, Dr. Wildmann, cannot open the evening for us today as he's in hospital to have surgery after an accident. He sends his warmest regards to all of you, and he hopes as much as I do that you will enjoy the evening. Therefore, I'm very happy to welcome you all in the name of the Leo Beck Institute London tonight, and I hope you will enjoy our opening lecture of this year's LBI London lecture series that is dedicated to the topic, Conceptions of Heimat in Jewish Visual History and Culture. Before I go into greater detail about today's event, let me give you some technical advice to assist you in setting up your screen for the best possible access to our lecture. It is advisable to select full screen and to activate the mode active speaker video. To do so, click on the top bar frame in your Zoom window, this one here, and you will see three options there. The tiny little blob, the big one in the middle, and these two windows underneath each other. Select the one in the middle to show active speaker video. You also have the option to adjust the size of the speaker window at your own convenience by pulling the bottom left corner, this one here, up and down as you can see in the arrow. Please note that these changes will only affect your view, so you don't have to worry when you change something that it affects the lecture at all. Now, the Leo Beck London Lecture Series is organized jointly by the Leo Beck Institute London and the German Historical Institute London. It is always a great honor for us to work with the German Historical Institute London, and I'm very happy to let Professor Christina von Hodenberg, the director of the GHI, extend her welcome to you now. So over to you, Christina. Thank you so much, Kinga, um, for the introduction. Um, I am, again, um, very sorry that we can't actually meet physically at the um, German Historical Institute at Bloomsbury Square. And um, I can't wait to welcome you there again once that we are able to. Nevertheless, I'm very much looking forward to tonight's lecture by Han Hanno Löwy and to learning more about um, the Alps and the uh, and skiing and the Jews. And it has been a longstanding um, partnership between the Leo Beck Institute in London and the German Historical Institute London. And uh, it is a partnership that we at the German Historical Institute are particularly interested in because we want to build bridges between the fields of um, Jewish European history and German academics and British academics um, who work on Jewish and non-Jewish um, topics. Um, and with that, um, I um, say again, uh, say also that I wish Daniel Wildmann a speedy recovery. It is too bad that he can't be here today. Um, and I hand back over to Kinga Bloch for tonight's evening. Um. Thank you very much, Christina, and also many thanks to your team at the German Historical Institute. Um, as you know, it's always a great pleasure to work with you, and we are all very much looking forward to returning to your institute with non-virtual events as soon as that becomes possible again. Let me now 
give you a short introduction to the topic of our lecture series and to our speaker, Hanno Löwy. As you all know, this year's lecture series examines the German Jewish and European Jewish notion of Heimat and its diverse and changing visual representations, as well as their interpretations during the course of history. Um, this lecture series looks at this complex subject through a prism of visual media, such as the arts, photography, film and fashion, as well as literature. Heimat is a very political and a very emotional subject as it always deals with questions of belonging. Within the German context, one of the key areas where belonging is expressed is, of course, nature. I'm therefore very happy to welcome our first speaker in our series today, Dr. Hanno Löwy. Hanno Löwy will talk about the exciting subject, unrewarded love, alpine clubs, ski tourism, folklore, and the Jews. Hanno Löwy is a scholar of literature and film and a renowned exhibition curator and author. Currently, he is director of the Jewish Museum in Hohenems in Austria. It is very hard to boil down Hanno Löwy's diverse portfolio of academic publications, the wide range of topics he touched upon in exhibitions as a curator, and his work on the history and the impact of the Holocaust without taking over the entire lecture. So please forgive me, Hanno, and please forgive me, dear guests, if I can only scratch the surface here. As director of the Jewish Museum Hohenems in Austria, Hanno curated a diverse range of exhibitions, ranging from everything you always wanted to know about Jews, but were afraid to ask, to Jukebox, Jukebox, a Jewish century on shellac and vinyl. And of course, an exhibition that is particularly interesting for our um, topic tonight, Did You See My Alps? A Jewish Love Story. Prior to his current position in Hohenems, Hanu Löwy built up the Fritz Bauer Institute, the study and documentary center on the history and impact of the Holocaust that is in Frankfurt am Main, functioning as the founding director between 1995 and 2000. He was also president of the Association of European Jewish Museums between 2011 and 2017, and he also participated in the creation of the permanent exhibitions of the Jewish Museum Frankfurt am Main and Berlin as a guest curator. Finally, let me mention some of the books Hanno Löwy wrote and edited. One is Holocaust, Grenzen des Verstehens, eine Debatte über die Besetzung der Geschichte. And another book is on Bela Balash, Märchen, Ritual und Film. And of course, he also published Did You See My Alps? Hast du meine Alpen gesehen? Eine jüdische Beziehungsgeschichte. I'm more than happy to now clear the stage, or rather the screen, for Hanno Löwy, so we can all get an insight into unrewarded love, alpine clubs, ski tourism, folklore, and the Jews. So over to you, Hanno. You can take over the screen. Yeah, hello to everybody. Um, I will also share my screen in a few seconds um, and you will get not only uh, words but also 
imagery, uh, which uh, related to the subject I'm talking about, um, is sometimes funny, sometimes tragic, and very often simply surprising. And uh, I, I want to speak about pioneers of the idea of Heimat who helped to turn the Alps into the playground of Europe. And I now try to let you see what I have on my desktop prepared and start this. And I hope it works. So, who were these pioneers who tried to turn the Alps into the European playground? It was the urban Jewish middle classes. In cities like Vienna, Berlin or Prague, um, society offered Jews access to secular culture, industry or higher education. But the domesticated wilderness of the mountains provided something even more attractive, the prospect of innocence, a dream of togetherness and belonging beyond confines of class, religion, ethnicity, and beyond of anti-Semitic resentment. Jewish climbers, environmentalists, and pioneers of tourism were among the first to organize Alpine clubs while others rediscovered and reinvented folklore. All of them lost their faith in the Alpine pastoral after 1933. Memories of innocent moments enshrined in memorabilia and tales lived on up today. Some of this has its afterlife in the Alps even today. So now I have a problem because my screen, ah, wait a second, ah, it's here. The history of the Alps gives, and I quote, roughly and abbreviated the history of Europe, that is of our morality. Arnold Zweig wrote this in 1940, in his exile in Haifa. His book about the European backbone of mountains was published only long after his death. Dialectic of the Alps, progress and obstacle. From here to Paul Celan's only piece in prose, his Gespräch im Gebirg, Conversation in the Mountains, reach those Jewish reflections about the mountains as a site of encounter. Here, the photograph is not Adorno and Celan, who actually did not make it to meet in the mountains, but Adorno and Siegfried Krakauer. For European Jews, the mountains in the middle of the continent have always been a fascination, a challenge and a mystery at the same time. This extravagance of nature, this opulence of beauty, ruggedness, and energy had to have a meaning that had to be fathomed. Thus unfolds an eventful history of relationships 
the story of an often disappointed love, a story that began much earlier on the proverbial Mount Sinai and with what the first mountaineer in history of modern civilization found there. And something with this PowerPoint nugs me because, ah, okay, it works it's this way. In the mountains where heaven and earth, spirit and nature meet, humanity is said to have received the laws. Thus, the Jewish tradition imagines reason from time immemorial as that contact at the boundary between the earthly and the divine. There where nature rises from mere necessity and outgrows itself. Precisely on the summits of the mountains where as Bela Bolash, the Hungarian Jewish film theorist and communist author of fairy tales has written, the creature has transcended the boundary of its nature as home and stands eye to eye with the dark universe. This can be said less pathetically, the fascination that comes from that transgression of the boundaries of our everyday world makes many eyes light up. When I stand before God, the eternal will ask me, have you seen my Alps? This is what the founder of Jewish neo-orthodoxy, Samson Raphael Hirsch, is said to have once said to his scholars. What is it about these mountains? To whom do they belong who lets them open their eyes and for what? The Jewish love for the Alps was and still is an attempt to inscribe itself into the European reality, an attempt to interpret and rediscover Europe in a universalistic way. And that is where at least that's what many Jewish explorers of the Alps thought one encounters each other as naked human beings. If one examines the history of the modern development of the Alps, one encounters this hope everywhere, whether in Hohenems of Vienna, Grisons or Savoie, in the Salzkammergut in Southern Tyrol or in the Valais. It is a voyage of discovery through the worlds of summer retreats and alpinism the opening up of the mountains for international tourism and the invention of modern skiing. A journey to intellectual childhoods and adult dreams beyond the cities through the entire history of modern Central European anti-Semitism and through the contradictions of assimilation and migration, of persecution and reconsideration in the diaspora. Contradictions that were experienced suffered and sometimes overcome by men and women who often first experienced their Jewishness, Jewishness by and through these contradictions. The history of the Jews in the Alpine region would begin with the expansion of the Roman Empire. It was first a history of travel, of transit between the Jewish centers south and north of the Alps. Jewish communities in the Alpine valleys emerged only late and remained a rarity. 
Hohenems, Innsbruck, and Murano. Still later came, for example, Lugano and Lucerne, or the seasonal Jewish life in the health resorts of Grisons, that is Graubünden, and Valais. But the Jews in the cities around, in Vienna and Zurich, Munich and Milan, Geneva and Basel, referred since the 19th century again and again to the mighty mountains, the center of gravity of Europe. And even in distant Berlin, a Jewish alpinism was stirring, a Jewish longing to participate in this energy and this experience to transform oneself in climbing and understanding the mountains into something truly European or into what an enlightened zeitgeist understood or rather hoped to be Europe. From Georg Simmel's physiognomy of the Alps to Arnold Zweig's cultural and democratic history of the Europeans Earth's crust, from Bela Bolas rapturous feuilletons about flower meadows in Arosa and his hymns to the mountain film. Here you see him working together with Leni Riefenstahl on a film. To Stefan Zweig's horror of the carefree contemporaries of World War I in Swiss luxury hotels. There is a long chain of literary and philosophical writing about the Alps. There, where nature rises to into uh, where mere nature rises into spiritual dimensions, Jewish intellectuals from Theodor Herzl and Sigmund Freud to Theodor Adorno, from Peter Altenberg to Wilhelm Flusser, from Walter Benjamin on the right um, with his brother to Viktor Frankl, more serious on its way, have thought about the world differently than down in the valley. Long before that, the mountains had already been opened up to tourists. And that meant first and foremost to bourgeois life and experience. Since the middle of the 19th century, the British in particular had turned the Alpine mountains into recreational area a place for sublime feelings in safe comfort. Jewish hoteliers and hotel guests were also soon among the pioneers of Alpine tourism, sometimes eyed suspiciously by non-Jewish hoteliers. This is the guest book of the Palace Hotel in St. Moritz. And if you read this guest book and the secret notes, the uh, personal did about the guests, you find entries like the one in the middle about a Jewish family, bon client, mais juif. The Alps, once considered intimidating and dangerous and even ugly, emerge in the 19th century as a source of health. In Merano and in Bad Gastein, in Davos, and Reichenau between Trentino Alto Adige, which is Southern Tyrol, and the Salzkammergut in the Grisons and on the Semmering. The healing powers of sun, mountain air, and mountain water are offered to city dwellers now. 
Doctors as the spas are, at the spas are needed, to, ready to move as pioneers into the Alpine valleys. As our entrepreneurs prepare to bring urban hotel culture to the mountains. It is no coincidence that Jews like Benedikt von Hönigsberg in Bad Gastein or Raphael Hausmann in Merano frequently became the first to develop these resorts into European dimensions. Why? Because it was risky to leave the cities and to start a career somewhere in a then remote Alpine Valley. In the early 20th century, a flourishing Jewish community of almost 1,000 members existed in Merano. Hotels and sanatoria managed by Jews such as the Mendelhof, the Bristol, or the Berman family's kosher Bellaria that you see here, attracted Jewish guests to the spa. Thanks to Raphael Hausmann, the Merano grape cure became known all over Europe. At that time, people didn't know um, that it was not really healthy to drink so much sugar in the juice of grapes. Uh, now we are a little more uh, knowledgeable about that. Um, members of the Honems family, Biedermann, opened the first bank in Southern Tyrol. The railway pioneers of the Schwarz family also from Hohenems paved the way for tourism in the valleys and mountains around Bolzano and Merano in Southern Tyrol. And even an asylum for poor Jews in need of a cure was erected in Merano. West of Vienna, on the other hand, the mountains around Semmering and in the Salzkammergut became a Jewish summer retreat, a natural part of upper middle-class life and bourgeois salons, where, Vienna, where Vienna's cultural life breathed a sigh of relief and renewed its creativity. From Arthur Schnitzler, here on a hiking tour through Vorarlberg and Grisons, to Robert Musil from Genia Schwarzwald, to Gustav Mahler from Peter Altenberg, to Felix Salten. Many of them, like others from the urban middle classes, spent the months of summer outside of the bustling cities and enjoyed being in a place where they weren't primarily viewed as Jews, but just as those people from the city, and where they could enjoy the childish illusion of starting from scratch. Running around in Lederhosen was not only um, fun for kids who weren't obliged here to follow the strict rules of behavior they were used in their bourgeois home in the urban environment, but also as the most significant symbol of becoming native. And uh, I collected a few hundreds of these nice photographs of Jews in Lederhosen. I don't uh, treat you with all of them. The industrialist uh, Konrad Mautner, um, whose photo album is full of pastoral scenes of his life in the mountains in the Salzkammergut, became a local icon in his adopted Heimat in the Aussee region. His likeness in Tracht traditional costume promoted the entire region. 
he acquired reputation with his collection and at the very first, at the very early stage, recordings of Styrian, Styrian folk music and his book about Styrian Tracht, folklore dressing, which he published together with the folklorist Victor Geram. In 1938, his properties were Aryanized and his family had to escape abroad or was killed. The famous Mautner Trachtenkammer, the second largest Tracht collection in Austria, full of regional dresses and lederhosen, was integrated into the Kammerhof Museum in Bad Aussee as a nationally significant asset. In 1900, the Wallach brothers, originally from Westphalia, that is Northern Germany, opened a Tracht specialty store in Munich. In front of a large panorama of the Alps, they offered numerous regional and also international traditional costumes. Through their activities, the Dirndl, meant as a traditional female dress, soon became acceptable in town as well. It was even introduced to the court of the Bavarian princes and their stores turned into social hubs of Munich. Later, they devoted half of their flagship store in Munich to the creation of a museum of Alpine folklore, making their store even more popular. The downside of this idyllic world of summer resorts very soon became the rise of anti-Semitism. The rural, rural world became a battleground of identity politics and was declared a symbol of the nation's purity. Some resorts and hotels touted with the rejection of Jewish summer vacationers. Other places were stigmatized as Jewish. Famous Bad Ischl, for instance, home of a flamboyant villa of the Austrian emperor, got a new label, Bad Ischlis. For others, the Austrian and later the German Alpine Club was the social place to master the mountains in the flesh. As a bourgeois discovery of one's own nature, as much as a spiritual experience. Founded in the 1860s by urban middle-class activists, many of them interested in geology and geography, and in fact, many of them Jewish. The Austrian Alpine Club followed the example of the British Alpine Club that was founded already in 1859. It were actually British mountaineers indeed who set the standards of the exploration of the Alps as a challenge to human nature and spirit and as a European rather than a national symbol. Poor British mountaineers. When the Hohenems Alpine Club was founded in 1875, nine of its 11 members were Jews and thousands of German and Austrian Jews participated in the movement of European alpinism, which for them meant universalism and assimilation at the same time. Among the most famous mountaineers and alpinists of all times, um, Jews such as Paul Preuss, whose renunciation of technical aids provoked the legendary wall hook controversy 
1911. Uh, Paul Preuss, we see him here um, in the Austrian Alps, um, advocated climbing without hooks and ropes, um, something very special up today for those radical mountainers who try to um, climb the mountains without any technical help, a pretty dangerous thing. Um, and uh, it also took Paul, Price, Paul Preussen's life. His outstanding achievement inspire alpinists up to this day, such as Reinhold Messner. Preuss completed 1,200 ascensions, 300 of them solo, and 130 were first ascents. Through his published papers, he became one of the spiritual fathers of free climbing. Anyone who, he, anyone who requires artificial means of support, he wrote, to make a tour he would not dare attempting without should not embark on such a tour. With this motto, he sets off the widely known Pitten controversy. On October 3, 1913, Paul Preuss fell to his death at the Mandelkogel in the Dachstein mountain range. Gottfried Merzbacher, who did pioneering work not only in the Alps, but also in the Caucasus, Otto Margulis, who had lost a leg in a fall and then continued to make a name for himself with first ascents with one leg, fought for the reputation of disabled people in a spectacular way. Uh, you can count many of these people who try to do their best to outdo all the other climbers in the mountains. The Viennese Alpine Club section Austria, this is by the way, the hammer of Paul Preuss, which uh, Reinhold Messner is uh, with a certain irony uh, keeping in his museum in Southern Tyrol, because even the most radical of all climbers, Paul Preuss, once in a while also hit a nail into a wall and helping himself to climb the wall. Um, the Viennese Alpine Club section Austria finally counted almost one at uh, almost 2,000 Jewish members, one third of the total number of 6,000. When already in 1921, an Aryan paragraph decided by the majority began to get serious with the exclusion of Jews from society. So the um, Alpine clubs were not only a kind of playground, but they were also an exercise ground for uh, what later was called Aryanization in the 1920s. Until World War, and there were many disputes about that. This is a caricature of a satirical magazine that is mockery, that is full of mockery against the anti-Semites, um, how they um, create um, um, Aryanized, uh, Jew-free Alpine club, and they are all um, nah, these kind of stupid animals. Until World War I, anti-Semitism was still a minority position in the German and Austrian Alpine associations. But some sections already refused admissions of Jews before World War I. After 1918, anti-Semitism was on the rise and under the leadership of the anti-Semitic politician and mountaineer Eduard Pichel, 
the large section of Austria in Vienna introduced the Aryan, Aryan paragraph and excluded one third of its members. This decision was followed by quite uh, brutal disputes within the association as a whole. The adherents of the anti-Semitic race ideology prevailed in almost all Austrian sections and turned them by and by into national socialist front organizations. Jewish Alpinists did not give up and together with non-Jewish friends founded their own Alpine club section, the so-called Donauland. Among its most famous members were the psychologist Viktor Frankl and Josef Braunstein. Braunstein, born in 1892, was not the typical mountaineer as we might imagine. He was a violinist in the Vienna State Opera under Richard Strauss and Bruno Walter and a music uh, musicologist. Um, and he helped uh, Wilhelm Furtwängler to arrange orchestral parts. And he was also playing under Otto Klemperer. In addition to this, he wrote monographs about music and articles for newspapers and magazines, and not least for the important radio magazine Radio Wien. When he wrote a positive review of Alban Berg's Wozzeck in 1936, most radical modern music, the Heimatschutz in Vienna demanded his dismissal. But Braunstein was able to secure a protection that was particularly helpful in Austria in 1936. A book Braunstein had written had made an impression on the Pope, Pius XI, who shared with Braunstein a passion other than music, the Alps. Braunstein climbed 64,000 uh, 64, meter peaks, and he wrote dozens of essays about mountaineering in various Alpine magazines, not least the magazine of the Donauland, which he edited himself, Berg and Ski. Above all, he took the ideology of mountains and alpinism to task. Thus, in 1924, for instance, he um, took Karl Blodig's book, Die Viertausender der Alpen, the Four Thousander um, of the Alps, as an opportunity to pose the question of sport or religion. He climbed the mountains to pray. This self-stylization of Blodig gives him no peace. He climbed the mountains to pray, but could perform his devotions only on 4,000 meter peaks. He climbed the mountains to pray. That's why he was determined to climb the Groß Lauter Ahorn under all circumstances, despite the need to turn back because it was the last Swiss 4,000 meter peak that was missing from his collection. The Alps, he wrote in 1936, on the other hand, in view of the death on the north face of the Eiger, that was this famous battle uh, for the first climb of this uh, north wall of the Eiger, which costed uh, a lot of lives. The Alps are no longer the playground of Europe, but a soldierly training ground, the grandiose showcase of nature, not a moral, but a military institution. 
And you might know that there was a big battle between uh, German climbers, um, Austrian and Swiss climbers, who will be the first to get through this uh, vertical wall. And uh, for Hitler and for the Nazis, this battle was of particular significance. In 1924, already the Donauland, until then, an independent section of the Alpine Club was expelled from this largest civil society in Austria, the Alpine Club. At that time, already 96 out of 100 Austrian Alpine Club sections had introduced their own Aryan paragraph in 1924. In the early 1920s, anti-Semitic activists in Austria had socially enforced the Aryanization without being stopped. The exclusion of Jews had been successfully tried out in one of the largest social organizations long before the National Socialists began the final solution of the Jewish question. It took a long time before a discussion of this history was possible in the German and even longer in the Austrian Alpine Club. Bitter battles were fought over it. Today, at the uh, Friesenberg House in the Zillertal Alps, which once belonged to the Berlin Alpine Club that left the Alpine Club also in protest against the club's official anti-Semitism um, and was signed over its cabin to the Donauland Alpine Club in 1933, just in time before the Nazis could take it. Now a memorial plaque and an exhibition recall the racial fanaticism in the Alpine Club and the fate of its Jewish members. So if you climb up this nice Alpine cabin in 2,500 meter above sea level, uh, you will run into this memorial plaque and a little exhibition. In the Austrian Ski Association, such a dispute about the organization's history is still pending. After all, the Austrian Ski Association in German USV had also excluded its Jewish members in the 1920s, not least its early chairman, Rudolf Gompertz, an engineer from a Jewish family in Vienna, who together with the legendary ski idol Hannes Schneider had founded modern ski tourism and skiing on the Alberg. Already in the years before World War I, Schneider and Gompertz had started together with a Jewish climber and skiing enthusiast from a Hohenems and Frankfurt Jewish family, Bernhard Trier, to offer tourists from the cities the full package, the first all-inclusive winter sport weeks in St. Anton with hotel and ski lessons combined, a ski jump arena and competitions making St. Anton famous. Gompertz co-founded, oh, this is not Gompertz, sorry. Um, Gompertz is the old guy on the right. Gompertz co-founded the Austrian Ski Association, functioned as chairman, then secretary in its first decisive years and became head of the St. Anton tourist office in the late twenties. When Hannes Schneider turned its ski school into a worldwide known institution. His ski instructors were among those who later spread the new sport 
in the US and even in Japan. Schneider had invented the new technique of skiing that informed the sport for the next 80 years to come. And together with Gompertz, he used all modern media to propagate the sport in the cities, mountain films by the Jewish film producer Harry Zokal and director Arnold Funk made Hannes Schneider at the side of Leni Riefenstahl, the best known skier in the world. Paul Dessau, the Jewish communist composer, wrote the musical scores for a number of these films. And together with the Jewish publisher Kurt Enoch from Hamburg, uh, for instance, they produced modern ski instructing books like this one with uh, film scenes that show every moment in the movement to teach people how to move, to jump, to turn the skis around and all the things you should need when you want to uh, survive the slope. Bela Bolash praised the mountain film against all criticism by Siegfried Krakauer as the modern fairy tale. And you see here Bela Bolash on the, on the left, also with proper lederhosen on the uh, set of the mountain film, The Blue Light. Actually, the first feature film of Leni Riefenstahl, Bolash uh, wrote the script for and also assisted Riefenstahl in the directing of the film. And the taller man is uh, Matthias Biemann, the main uh, male actor of the film. And uh, this film was created exactly after the ski film um, that uh, Funk um, and Riefenstahl and Schneider did on the Alberg that became um, instrumental in advertising the Alberg as one of the main ski arenas of the Alps. While Bolaj in 1933 emigrated to Moscow and Harry Zokal, Dessau and Enoch to Paris, as so many other Jewish artists and publishers involved in mountain and ski films, in Austria, it took a few more years for the Nazis to take power. But in 1938, Gompertz was thrown out of his post in St. Anton and in 1942 was deported and killed in Malitrostinets. His last letter to his wife, or oh, when this is still seen of the blue light with Riefenstahl, um, and actually the very skilled way of a lighting technician, uh, Arnold Funk learned uh, from Helma Lersky, the uh, Jewish uh, photographer and uh, cinematographer um, that they also used in the Alps to direct sunlight into the scene. Uh, but back to uh, Gompertz, uh, his last letter to his wife sent from a Judenhaus in Vienna in 1942 is preserved. And even Hannes Schneider, and uh, he is, uh, yeah, he was uh, deported first from St. Anton to Vienna and then from Vienna to Minsk and from there to Malitrostinets and never returned. Even Hannes Schneider, who was definitely not Jewish, was arrested in 1938 by those Nazis who had an agenda with him for long because uh, Hannes Schneider never um, engaged uh, uh, ski instructors who were illegal, illegal Nazis in the 1930s. So they, they hated him. In a Nazi paper, Hannes Schneider was attacked as being a Jew. 
Mr. Hannes Schneider may perform his turns wherever he wants, perhaps on Mount Sinai, which would suit him best anyway. And there was a real campaign against the Jewish moguls of St. Anton. And uh, Hannes Schneider um, at that time was uh, an outstanding athlete that had been shaping modern skiing worldwide for the past 30 years. And he was the icon of skiing in both Austria and Germany. So the Nazis were forced to let him go again after a few weeks in prison, but they campaigned in writing against him till in January, 1939, he left Austria for good and started his new ski school on Mount Cranmore in New Hampshire. And that he did till he died in the 1950s as the most famous and successful ski instructor of the US. All the participation and all the merits, all the longings and all the love finally helped nothing when the Nazis wanted to banish and destroy the Jews from the globe as creatures against nature. The Alpine Club was vanguard for what followed and the Swiss Alpine Club in safe Switzerland looked on as, looked on as others did. After the National Socialist takeover in Austria, Jews in the Salzburg region were banned from wearing traditional costumes in July 1938. Um, there was a special Trachtenverbot that was uh, brought into practice, uh, punishing Jews who dared uh, longer still to wear lederhosen and dirndls, a particularly malignant expression of exclusion. What did it matter then that it were collectors like Konrad Mautner or Jewish textile manufacturers like the Wallach family in Munich who had made the Dirndl or the Lederhosen socially acceptable in the first place? That is precisely what they were now being reproached for. Wallach's German national attitude was no longer of any help. The Jews and the German, Austrian, Italian Alps, whether in Honems or in Merano, were also finally deported. The Wallachs made it to the US. And while Mautner's brother Stefan was killed in Auschwitz, his daughters made it to London. One of the eminent ethnographers of life in the Alps, Eugene Eugenie Goldstern from Vienna, was deported to Izbiza and vanished probably in Sobibor. As a folklorist, she had exercised her studies with a certain universalist perspective. She had investigated everyday aesthetics in the Alpine region, informed by an interest in the Rite de Passage and in uh, the everyday life and the difficult everyday life of the farmers in high uh, range villages in the French and Austrian and Swiss uh, mountains. And she lived with these peasants for months and did uh, what would be called later on teilnehmende uh, Beobachtung, involved uh, observation um, and, and, and did photographs of their everyday life, but also of their everyday aesthetics. And uh, yeah. She, in the end, left 
the most important collection of Alpine folk art to the Folklore Museum in Vienna, particularly interested in the simple things as uh, cows uh, made from wood as children toys and things like that. Another beautiful lady was Lily Bites, who was um, also successful in producing traditional costume dolls in Salzburg, Berlin, and Aussie. Grown up in the Salzkammergut as the daughter of a well-known Aussie balneologist, Josef Schreiber, who also installed a famous sanatorium in Merano, she had established a flooring, flourishing production of Tracht dolls in Berlin and in Salzburg, and was in charge of the decoration for ocean liners and movie sets, international fairs in the US, department stores and exhibitions with historic dioramas inspired by folklore. This is a particularly beautiful piece. It's a menu of the restaurant on the Hamburg America line uh, on, on board of the uh, steamer New York in 1932, following motifs of the Weisses Rössel, the famous operetta, also written by a Viennese Jew, um, and presenting the menu in this form on every table. Um, shortly before the Nazi takeover in Berlin, she left for Bad Aussee. Um, her company was Aryanized through, through um, in fact, and it continued to be managed by non-Jewish friends of hers. Eventually, even her good connections in Aussee could no longer protect her from national socialist persecution. On the eve of her deportation, Lily Bites committed suicide on August 14, 1942. Her company had a strange afterlife. Two friends of her brought her brand to life after the war in Bregenz in Vorarlberg. One of the two had survived the war even with her hidden Jewish background. The little dolls they produced after 1945, still under the name of Bites, as you see with this little label, became um, part of the most popular export goods from post-war Austria. Nobody, apart from a few of their closest friends, ever knew about the tragic story behind the brand. Definitely not uh, German Chancellor Ludwig Erhard, who enjoys Beitz dolls at the Frankfurt Fair, this lovely scene of photographs. When the Nazis took power in Austria, the Alps became a space of completely different experiences. The years between 1938 and 45 were not characterized by Alpine experiences anymore, but by flight and extermination. The Austrian Swiss border, like the border between Vichy France and Switzerland became a promise of salvation controlled by Swiss border guards who guarded the boat that was supposedly already so full. And from 1938 onward, drove countless people back into the arms of the National Socialists in increasingly rigid ways. But still, many managed to escape, partly with the support of Swiss helpers, such as Paul Grüninger, the Swiss police officer in St. Gall, who helped many hundreds to cross the border 
south of Lake Constance and to be interned at least in Swiss camps. From the beginning of the war in 1939, more and more camps of the Nazi regime were established in the Alps, mainly outposts of the Mauthausen concentration camp, where prisoners of war and also Jews were put to work under incredible conditions. The Ebensee camp in the former summer resort paradise of Ausea land became a true hell for the inmates, among them numerous Jews. Due to so-called evacuation transports at the end of the war, from other concentration camps, it became a starvation camp. In order to improve the food situation, the camp administration deliberately caused the death of Jewish prisoners. Others had more pastoral memories of these camps. The Austrian Nazi painter Ernst Vollbeer, for instance, did not only scenes of Nazi party rallies, but also of the concentration camp at the Leubelpass in the Karawanken Mountains in Carinthia. This painting for many years was decorating an office in the Carinthian capital of Klagenfurt after 1945 in some office building as some kind of Alpine pastoral um, or a bad joke before it went into the collection of the Klagenfurt Art Museum. Among the few who survived these horrors was the young sport teacher, Viktor Knopf, who was to play an important role later on in the transfer of Jewish DPs over the Krimmeltauern, for instance, in the years of 1946 to 1948. Now, it was the survivors of the camps and Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe who wanted to cross the mountain passes to reach the Mediterranean ports. Many of them on the paths of the Brecha, the illegal Jewish immigration organization to Palestine. Here, a scene from Maya Levin's legendary film, The Illegals about the Brecha, probably set in Tyrol. Austrian police officers made notes in their reports alluding to secret orders to the Jews to leave Europe and full of mockery that now finally we get rid of them by this. Camps for displaced persons were established in Hohenems and Gnadenwald near Innsbruck, around Salzburg and in Bad Ischl, in Saalfelden and in Admont, everywhere in the Austrian Alps. Jewish refugees were cared for in Merano and Davos, admittedly also in the hope of soon being able to send them on their way. But the fascination of the mountains remained. Since the beginning of the 20th century, Orthodox Jews had been drawn from the cities of Central Europe to the mountains, especially in the Grisons. The oldest kosher hotel on the mountains, the Edelweiss in St. Moritz, opened its doors to Jewish tourists from all European countries as early as 1886 and most famously became a hub for arranged Jewish marriages between Orthodox families later on from all over the world. Even today in the mountains, one encounters a traditional Jewish world with a complete infrastructure from the Chalot bakery to the synagogue, from the mikvah and kosher cuisine to the cemetery. Today, mostly it's private accommodations that work best for the big 
families. And even in Austria, summer residences for Jewish Orthodox guests pop up in winter sport valets that can't fill their beds during the summer. And the photographs I show here are by Mickey Meltzer and Patricia Schön, uh, done 10 years ago for our Alpine exhibition, all in Swiss resorts in Davos, St. Moritz, and so on. Up to this day, Hasidic rabbis hold court in Davos, St. Moritz, St. Moshe, or Arosa, Arosalem. The highest Jewish cemetery in Europe in Davos offers a final resting place for Jews for whom the mountains and the proximity to heaven was and is an alternative Zion, a refuge of spiritual concentration in a present that they still see by no means redeemed by the idea of a Jewish state in the Middle East. The Swiss Jewish artist Roger Rice has its own vision of the presence in the mountains. Josef Braunstein, the violinist who climbed 60 peaks over 4,000 meter, was one of many who did not give up on the Alps. In numerous photo albums, all preserved actually at your colleagues in New York at the Leo Beck Institute's archives in New York, um, in his albums, he documented his trips to Europe starting again in 1952 from New York, where he, with big luck, managed to escape to from Vienna in 1941, uh, 40, in, 19, in 1940. Um, Braunstein traveled back to the Alps every year, not to the Austrian Alps that somehow became hunting, haunting for him, but to the Brenta Dolomites in southern Tyrol with the Monte Cozzone and to the Matterhorn, um, the destination he was most enthusiastic about. Each summer, he spent most of his time in Zermatt, where he stayed at the Julen Hotel, ascends 4,000ers even at a ripe old age, and surrounded himself with an increasing community of admirers, especially women interested in music and mountain tours and tales. And he loved this Matterhorn and photographed it from all sides like a maniac. In the end, when he was very old, um, he was rewarded by Zermatt with this nice little plaque. Um, actually, he died in the age of 104 years. And uh, only a few years before he made it to Vienna after um, the war for the first time, um, awarded a medal also by the state of Austria. Hannes Schneider, the uh, non-Jewish Jew uh, who was sent to the Sinai by the Nazis and made it to Mount Cranmore, 
now was the admired ski instructor in the US. And he knew about the Alpine nostalgia of Jewish emigres and the impact of the Alpine myths on American Jewry. Already in 1948, he offered in the German Jewish newspaper Aufbau ski tours from the US to the Alberg. Now even more all-inclusive with a flight from New York to St. Anton, never mentioning the fact though that this place was in Austria and never had an airport. His son told me about his father, also working for the Jewish resorts in the Catskills. With the help of Schneider, it was the Grossingers, the famous Grossingers, that boasted with the first artificial snow ski slope in the world. Designed by Schneider, you can read in the article, it's too little for you to see it, but it's on the left in the left column, designed by Schneider. Um, today, this uh, slope would only be useful for babies, uh, flat as it was, but it was the first one in the world um, to uh, boast with artificial snow. If that was a good idea, I don't know, but uh, even at the Grossingers, the memories uh, of the Jewish Alps were pretty vivid after 1945. So that's uh, what I wanted to tell you. And I guess you have many questions or comments and uh, I hope I have fun with it. Um, Hanno, thank you so much for giving us such a comprehensive and exciting tour to the Jewish Alps. Um, I'm, I'm positively thrilled as I'm sure everybody else is. And we are now going to open um, the Q&A session. And just before we start collecting your questions, I would kindly ask you when you want to ask a question to put your name into the chat at the bottom of the screen. And then we're going to um, call on you in the order that we see your names showing up and um, our um, volunteer Luca is going to unmute you. So I can already see um, Jane Meta who wants to ask something. Um, hello, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I just wanted to thank Dr. Lowy so very much for this extraordinary um, expose of Jewish influence in the Alps. Um, it, it, it's really been fascinating. And actually my own research revolves around deported Jews from the Haute-Savoie in um, France uh, during the Second World War. And as Dr. Lowy, I'm sure will know, there are certain very prestigious ski resorts that were home to many bourgeois or haute bourgeoisie Jews uh, from prior to the Second World War and that provided a haven. And although I appreciate that his work is not in France, I was wondering if he could perhaps share with me some references of people who have done what he has done for Austria and Germany and Switzerland for France. 
I have to admit that uh, in our research, uh, we never came across something profound on that aspect about uh, the hotels in the French mountains. Um, I'm not sure if that might occurred in the last 10 years, but I didn't come across actually with uh, profound research on that subject. There's quite a lot that I've found actually, um, which I, I'm using in my research, but I just wondered if you could point me in a additional yeah. direction. So thank you so much. Yeah, I, have to, I have to admit that I would be more interested to learn from you regarding that subject probably. Well, I, 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 I will be in contact with you because it's actually huge. Um, yeah. The dominance of the haute bourgeoisie in Chamonix and Mugerbe in the late yeah. 1800s that continued. But I won't keep your time. Thank you so much for your talk. It was amazing. Yeah, and thank you. And I'm waiting for, for this from you. <laughs> Okay, um, thank you very much, Jane. Next on the list is Christina von Rodenberg. Thank you so much. I was also very impressed um, by your wonderful reconstruction of this history. And um, I was wondering how much the um, fascination with the Alps had to do with ideas of masculinity. And actually I had to think of Daniel Wildmann's research on German gymnasts and, and, and uh, Jewish gymnasts. Um, and you also mentioned once that you could even see the Alps as a soldierly training ground. Um, and at the beginning of your talk, and most of your talk was devoted to male Jews and their fascination and their role um, in the Alps. Um, and I wonder whether it's the association of the Alps with German nationalism, but also, you know, youthful, healthful, muscular masculinity that um, really strengthens this connection. Um, and how do Jew Jewish women <laughs> kind of fit into this story, if that's the case? Um, I mean, this is a big subject, uh, just to take the, the Alpine clubs. Um, in the first 30 years, of the Alpine Club, uh, you, you didn't find any women in this uh, purely masculine uh, kind of uh, communication. And um, I know of, a, of, of quite a number of Jewish women who started to climb around 1900. And uh, Paul Preuss, for instance, was climbing regularly with Emmy Eisenberg together and other um, female climbers and um, even wrote an article that from if, about uh, female climbers um, in a very early moment in 1911 or something. Um, if you look at that article from with today's perspective, it still um, sounds pretty chauvinistic. If you look at it from a 1911 perspective, it was uh, definitely more of an approach to evaluate, to, to, to value, uh, no, not to evaluate, to, uh, to take that serious as something developing and, and, and being positive about it. Um, but I mean, he always had a certain irony when he was writing. 
But uh, definitely Jewish women played a role as, as climbers, but not only Jewish women. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, um, if you look into the skiing, climbing, um, nature resort things, um, women played a pretty, pretty prominent role in that. And uh, it, became, it became something about body, um, but also something about andro androgenity even. So it was one of the arenas in which uh, categories of sex were tested and contested rather than only on the affirmative. And I mean, even if you look at um, Leni Riefenstahl, um, part of her performance was always uh, pretty much stereotyping women as a kind of sacrifice um, of man. Um, and partly, um, at androgenity played a certain role in her films. So she was, she was very ambivalent about it, uh, presenting very stereotypical role models on the one hand and on the other hand, um, somehow also breaking that. And it was not that much her idea to do it, but she was uh, the film directors doing the films with her. Uh, she became a symbol for that. Um, so it was interesting. I mean, when the, the starting scene of the blue light, which Bolas wrote the, the script for, um, is starting with a scene in which uh, two completely um, androgenical, a couple, a man and a woman, both in, uh, in uh, what is this, mantle, um, uh, not duffel coat, um, ah, the, co the coat that- um, Oh, a loading coat? No, no, not the other thing. Um, the very modern coat. Um, oh, very modern. Hmm? Hmm, don't know. <laughs> Just a skiing jacket, yeah? Yeah, and it was, they, they were, they were, they were at least, they were, they're wearing the same clothes, st stepping out of a car uh, in an Alpine village. Um, so this is uh, a completely androgenical scene. Uh, that she presents at the beginning of the film. So we have a lot of contradictions in this business from something that started as a pure masculine enterprise into something that also tested these roles. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, thank you. Um, next up is Simon May on the list with his question. Can you hear me? Sure. Yeah, great. Anyway, thank you so much for this fascinating talk uh, on such an important subject. I just wanted to take you up on your emphasis on the Jewish relation to the Alps as a means and a symbol of assimilation and inclusion in the larger non-Jewish society. I mean, as the primary or one of the primary motives and to that end, focusing on organizations like climbing associations and ski associations. And I, I'm approaching this in no way as a professional historian, which I'm not, but as someone both of whose parents were German Jews and worshiped the Alps, and also from how they spoke about their parents and grandparents' motives. So we're going back to about 1890 or something. And that is that for them, the Alps were above all a metaphysical playground, I would put it that way. I mean, a way of experiencing, well, precisely of getting away from the whole assimilation thing and the whole worry about 
non-jury society, it was a way of experiencing the world beyond human bigotry, beyond human hatred, beyond unpredictability in a way, hence the metaphysical element. It was like a sort of, it was indeed a heimat, but it was a metaphysical heimat, sort of beyond the hope of acceptance from others. And I never heard about a motive, really a primary motive to mix on the basis of equality with non-Jews and all that. It, and it didn't seek reciprocated love either. It was a way of communing, not just with nature, but with a very particular kind of nature. And I just wanted to ask you sort of two points. I mean, one was, can you comment on that? In other words, you know, the metaphysical Heimat theme. And secondly, can you comment on another observation that I always heard, but this is not uh, statistically, of course, significant, but I mean, and I'm also speaking of a very large circle of friends here. Very, I mean, basically most of the people I grew up with, which is that the Swiss Alps, which you have included, but not specifically commented on their difference from the Austrian and German, not to mention the French and Italian, the Latin Alps, so to speak, that the Swiss Alps have a very special significance and prestige as a source of peace and escape from the entire, you know, struggle of assimilation and social acceptance and any search for reciprocated love, that there was something about the Swiss Alps, especially for the Germans, for the German Jews, that it had a very, very special role. So those will be my comment and a couple of questions. Ah, that's a good question. I mean, I start with the second one. Um, Interestingly enough, um, this quote I almost started with by uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch, did you see my Alps? I mean, when I, when I will stay in front of God, um, he will ask me, did you see my Alps? There are uh, two uh, ways this uh, quote is um, passed through generations of neo-Orthodox adherents. Um, there's the second version is, did you see my Swiss, my Switzerland? <laughs> so the Swiss Alp were kind of synonymous for the Alps, for the Alps without the particularity of the Austrian Alps, the Italian Alps, the French Alps, and the German Alps. The Swiss Alps were the Alps as such, as a kind of neutral ground. And um, Naturally, uh, that had to do with the political role of Switzerland uh, as being some kind of neutral uh, factor between uh, uh, Germany and Italy and, 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 and France and, and, and uh, Austria, uh, particularly uh, in World War I and also in World War II. Um, actually, for those Jews who lived in Switzerland, um, the whole story was not as that, not, not that sure. austral sure. because they experienced Swiss anti-Semitism and Swiss nationalism and Swiss bigotry and everything. Um, but for, for those Jews living in Berlin and Vienna and, and, and uh, somewhere, um, naturally there was a kind of myth about the Swiss Alps. Mm. And uh, for, yeah, for Josef Braunstein, at least after 1945, the Swiss Alps was the innocent place. And, uh, and also for, for the, the Orthodox tourists, um, the Swiss Alps uh, was the particular place. And it's only for 
now for about 15 years that ski resorts in Austria offer something to orthodox tourists from all over the world, um, which is interesting because um, it was heavily debated in the orthodox communities, would you go to Austria? And it's only for the last 15 sure. years that uh, there are places um, in the, the Austrian Alps where the Orthodox Jews meet in the summer. Thank you. Can you comment on the first uh, question on the metaphysics point? I mean, if you look into philosophers who, who reflected upon the Alps, you mostly run into Jewish philosophers um, who, who try to understand this mount, these mountains as something in particular from very different angles. Um, and Wilhelm Flusser wrote about the mountain passes that uh, gives you a completely different perspective on life compared to the valleys. Um, for Bela Bolas, it was this um, nature above nature. Um, I mean, they, it's not it's not easy to generalize because uh, the ideas about the Alps are so so different and, and diverse. But at least uh, this this opulence of uh, of energy and uh, yeah natural beauty and everything was some kind of a challenge for thinking. And, and, and definitely for Jews who, who went there, it was a way to step out all those things in the cities that made you Jewish in particular. While when you went to the Alps, you tried to be human um, and, and, and not Jewish in particular apart from the orthodox Jews who have their own idea about it. But it simply meant the illusion of stepping out of all these historical determinations into something more innocent. And at least as an illusion, it worked for, for, for generations. Great, thank you. Um, thank you. We have um, two more questions in the pipeline. One is from Bernard Bloom. I can see you, you have your hand raised. Yes, um, we have to unmute you first, one second. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I know it's been a long time. Good to see you. And Karina, nice to see you. Um, I'm gonna give you a somewhat contemporary view of your story. Uh, <laughs> short, uh, short story is I, Went to Germany in 1957, American military. Started skiing in Kitzbühel. Uh, skied in the Salzkammergut, met Austrians. Uh, had a girlfriend in Vienna. Um, took my grandchildren to Lech. Uh, if you remember, that's when you and I tried to get together. And the undercurrent always was, this guy's gotta be Jewish. He's got, his name is Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I didn't fit the prototype. Uh, let's say my revenge was this. I went to Lake, took my grandchildren, ages I think 12 and 13 at the time, and um, 
I'd had an accident and couldn't ski that well. So I put them out with a guide and they went out, skied and they came back and both the kids had raced uh, here in the US. And the instructor said, your grandchildren are good. He said the chief instructor was there and he thought they were very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there, if you will, is a view of, uh, let's say a more contemporary view, but the undercurrent always with, with Austrians. Well, he probably is Jewish, but we'll deal with him. Uh, this was skiing, visiting Vienna, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> You're tearing, I know. I, yeah. I Huh? You can run into something like that still today. Well, I, you know, <laughs> it's not my style. I, you know, I just I do what I think I need to do. But you've done a great presentation. I was looking forward to hearing you again. And Karina, we've been. I need to get in touch with you one of these days as well. So thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the for the talk. It really was it was marvelous. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. So we have. Um, Another question from um, Carmel Healy. She's next yeah, can you, can you see me? You can hear me. Okay. Um, yes, thank you, Dr. Lerby. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm actually doing a PhD with the LBI and looking at Bavarian Jews and kind of how they informed ideas of Germanness. Um, I think we spoke a few years back when I was looking for sources still. So um, this has been really nice to, to watch. Obviously, it's so closely related. Um, I, I narrowed my questions to about three, if you don't mind. So firstly, I was wondering whether there was kind of a difference between the relationship with, with the Alps and, and local Jews and those who were living in the cities and whether when, I'm thinking mostly about leisure culture here, when Jews came from the cities to kind of these alpine areas, whether there was any kind of uh, how the how the locals felt about these Jews coming from uh, the cities uh, compared to perhaps their Gentile neighbors. Um, and secondly, I wondered whether when Jews went on, on their holidays to these spa regions, kind of these these alpine spa regions, whether they usually went to the same one every year or whether they kind of went on a pilgrimage to all these different um, alpine sites and lastly and perhaps it's kind of uh, bears on one of the previous questions that we've had uh, in Lisa Silverman's book she talks about how the Alps the, the Jews were drawn to the Alps a lot because it was an explicitly explicitly non-Jewish site and I wonder whether you had any comments on that idea that that's it that's that's all i'll give you hmm. um i i didn't get the last question precisely what do you mean with that yes yeah, so in uh she 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 writes about um jews in austria and how quite a lot of uh, the viennese jews would go to the alps and she says that they were a lot of them were drawn to the alps because it was a, a, a non-jewish environment and perhaps kind of a, a form of of assimilation or integration um, could be found by participating in alpine activities. And I'm not sure whether kind of the things that you were saying were perhaps in contradiction to that. And I wonder whether you had any comments on it. Mm. Maybe I start with uh, question number two. <laughs> um, I mean, there were two very different ways of um, spending time in the Alps as a tourist. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, there was the world of big hotels and that was a world of urban luxury and comfort uh, brought to the Alps starting mainly in the 1880s, 1890s. I mean, there were some before, but that was late in the 19th century. Um, and, and Jews as other urban tourists with resources who, who went to these luxury hotels, um, I think very often went to different places and, and, and tried that and tried that. And some definitely became faithful to one of, one of these locations. Um, it was very different with those, and that was an earlier phenomenon as well already, who went for the whole summer to um, simpler places and uh, so-called Sommerfrische. So they, they rented a flat in, um, in a kind of pension in, a, in, a, in, a, in smaller places and uh, spent whole summers there. Um, and very often um, the man traveled back and forth to the cities because they had their business and they parked their women and children during the summer at, in these places. Um, so part of the family spent the whole summer there and the man very often commuted. Um, but that was a different way of experience at the Alps because that made more contact with the locals. And some of these people went to always the same places and started to, yeah, to, to, to study folklore and to build up collections and help to develop these places as well. So they became more a part of the life of these places and not just being tourists. And, and then um, naturally Jews came to, from the cities to these places as hotel developers or as, as, as medical doctors um, Merano was, a, was very particular in this respect because um, if you look into the hotels and sanatorium um, around 1900, uh, a large portion of them were run by Jews. Um, and uh, Merano became also a, a, a European hub of, of Jewish intellectuals spending summer there um, and go to this uh, not very um, healthy uh, grape cure. Um, and for the locals, definitely the Jews who come there were a source of wealth. So for quite a while, um, as long as it was a source of wealth, definitely the relationship went well. And uh, when economical crisis took over, it became more difficult. And uh, all these kind of anti-Semitic campaigns fell on more uh, fruitful ground, receptive ground. And uh, local Jews, I mean, there, there were very few places where you can speak about local Jews um, in the Alps. 
Um, and, and Honems was one of the very few places where Jews starting in the 17th century created a kind of permanent Jewish community there, um, which was quite different from, from other places where Jews started to come there in the late 19th century. Um, so you cannot generalize these different um, developments. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think I, that pretty much answers my, well, those two questions. I think I was just thinking about kind of, you know, Jews living in, in Bavaria who, uh, you know, wore the lederhosen and everything. And then you have Jews coming from, from Prussia who, who don, who don these uh, costumes and, and I, I, I guess play Bavarian and do the Alpine activities and whether there's, there was any kind of, conflict there um there, was, yeah. there definitely was conflict because uh starting in the late i mean in the starting in the 1880s um anti-semitic uh, caricatures popped up um with mockery of those urban jews coming to the mountains and and what do whatever um uh, grabbing uh, edelweiss from the mountains or whatever I mean, you have that starting in the 1880s uh, with the rise of anti-Semitism everywhere um, that uh, the Jews from the cities coming to the, to the mountain resorts became also a subject of mockery. Uh, but it, it, it mainly became serious after World War I, which uh, is just following the, 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 the pattern of the overall history. makes sense um and in terms of kind of viewing the alps as uh i guess seeing the alps in, in as a german space as opposed to a, a jewish space would that do you would you think that that's maybe one of the reasons why so many kind of jews participated in alpine activities again just bearing on what i've read in uh, silverman's book about about kind of a jewish alpinist in in vienna I mean, in the 19th century, this, this whole movement of alpinism started as a kind of liberal movement. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, taking, taking the example from the British, who definitely have no ownership on any territory of the Alps, um, this alpinism uh, movement in the beginning was a universal European Okay. movement and uh, that invited Jews from the cities starting from Vienna and then Munich Berlin everywhere uh, to be part of it and uh, with the rise of anti-semitism in the 1880s uh, the first debates came into that and uh, definitely after 1900 um, it was not just about the Jews being Aryan or Jewish, it was the Jews being German or Austrian or French or Swiss. And uh, these, the, the battle started, who is, who is the first on top of the mountain, particularly those mountains who are on the border, um, became uh, a heavy battleground of uh, mountaineers from Italy, for instance, and Switzerland. Um, who will who owns the mountain is the the first one who who is on the top 
Okay, no, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Salzburg, I mean, Salzburg was a, was a particularly special place because Salzburg was the, what is Laufsteg? Uh, the uh, catwalk. The fashion, the catwalk, that's it. The fashion show catwalk for Dirndl and Lederhosen. And when you came to, in the 1920s, when you came to the Salzburg festival, the first thing was uh, to go to uh, the Dirndl shop um, and to uh, to buy your costumes, and that was not a Jewish thing. That was just a thing of everybody who, who came there, went into the folklore shop, and got his costumes to 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 dress properly for the Salzburg festival. And uh, I mean, the whole of Salzburg became a catwalk for for folklore dresses. And naturally, some shopkeepers were Jewish. Um, and they uh, maybe had some, some advantage in communicating with urban people from Berlin because they maybe came from Berlin. Okay, um, thank you very much, um, Hanno, and thank you everybody for your questions. I have one last question, if you don't mind to, to stay a little second longer, and that is about the commemoration of the Jewish pioneers of the Alps. So I was quite intrigued by this little plaque and the little exhibition on that mountain hut that you mentioned. Are there any other instances that you're aware of, of visual markers in the towns of the Jewish presence prior to, um, to 1945 and to the discrimination period? I mean, really in the mountains, you don't find that much. Um, there is a Jewish museum in Murano. Um, and there's a Jewish museum in Honems. There is um, some presence um, of Jewish history in history museums of smaller or bigger towns and even villages in the Alps. But then you find an exhibition in an Alpine cabin is a rarity. Um, and it has very much to do with the special story of that cabin, because it was built by an Alpine club section that stepped out. It was the Berlin section that stepped out of the Alpine club in protest against the rise of anti-Semitism. Um, having Donauland was mainly Jewish. I mean, they have a few had a few non-Jewish members, but it was almost completely a Jewish section, while this Berlin Alpine Club section had a strong Jewish membership, um, but also a strong non-Jewish membership. And, uh, and then in 1933, uh, when the Nazis came to power in Germany, this Berlin club um, donated the cabin to the Donauland section, Donauland club in Vienna which still was possible, and it was in Austria, so the Nazis couldn't interfere in 1933. And then in 1938, the Wehrmacht took over this cabin. And in 1945, it was returned uh, to the Donauland. And then it was returned to the Berlin Alpenverein. And the Berlin club was the first Alpine club section that started to, to really address 
the Jewish story of the Alpine Club and the, and the anti-Semitic story of the Alpine Club. And uh, it's, it's, it's moving to come there. I mean, there's a very little exhibition. What they did is they, don't, they devoted every chair in the restaurant of this uh, cabin uh, to a Jewish climber. Um, and I also found a female Jewish climber from Berlin um, on, on a seat that just by chance I was sitting on. Um, so every, every chair is marked with the name of a Jewish climber. And uh, they are pretty active in that. There are local museums, let's say like the one in Schruns in Vorarlberg that devoted a whole exhibition on smuggle and, uh, and, and uh, escape stories um in the alps um so they would they took the subject series of jewish refugees as well so you find places where there is a memory but the friesenberg house is a very special place with this with this respect in 2500 meter okay yeah thank you thank you very much hanno um Thank you very much for your talk and thank you for, for to all the guests for, for joining us tonight and to the German Historical Institute for co-hosting and of course also to, to our Leo Beck Institute team that um, was so helpful in setting up all these technological perks. Um, I wish you all a very pleasant evening and I hope to see many of you at our ne next lecture, which is on the 18th of March um, by Jan Horak on Lersky. And, um, Everything that remains to me now is to wish you a pleasant evening and to hope that you have been as inspired by this talk as I have been. Um, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with you. And uh, maybe I have a chance to also listen to Jan Christopher on Lersky. Um, as I mentioned, Lersky was also involved in the yes. films. Uh, one of these films with Schneider, uh, Lersky, was the man with the camera. And he introduced this light technology, light uh, system to funk, later used in other funk films. Um, so even Lersky had some footprint in this Alpine story. <laughs> I, was, I was quite thrilled to hear that. It's actually a nice kind of link between the lectures, which is quite brilliant. So yeah, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye-bye.